Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, listeners and viewers, to episode number 171 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. Nick is back to join us for this week's episode. Welcome, Nick. I'm back. It's good to be here. You As ready? always, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> I know Mark will be back uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, he's uh, busy with other work items around the office, so I appreciate your time, Nick. Uh, Nick, you want to kick off with uh, pricing for the week? Yeah, absolutely. And as listeners are well aware by now, we uh, we start the podcast by just running through the pricing on the market, different parts of the market. And last week we were talking about the the big pop we got, and we were talking about month to date numbers in the up up four to five percent range, yep. and uh, a, a little a little gut a gut punch uh, last week, which we'll get into. So month to date, we're we're looking in that one to two percent range higher, and then year to date, we're down uh, in the range of anywhere from twenty five percent to to 33% on the NASDAQ. So the S&P 500 month to date up 0.7%, year to date down 24.2%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up month to date 1.7% and it's down 19.6% year to date. The NASDAQ Composite is down 0.3% month to date and down 32.6% year to date. The IWM, which is the iShare, uh, iShares Russell 2000 ETF, Think small caps up 1.7% month to date and down 24.6% year to date. And the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS ETF is up 0.7% month to date and down 27.1% year to date. And these numbers are actually as of this morning around 10 o'clock. And so today is 10 uh, 11. So um, I'll kick it over to you for. for Oh, actually, I, I skipped through. I didn't go through the yields. Sure. My, my apologies. The three-month treasury uh, rate is at 3.45%. The two-year treasury rate is sitting at 4.3%. And the 10-year treasury rate is sitting at 3.89%. So a little bit of change there, but still inverted on that twos and tens. And um, uh, it's come down a little bit over the past couple of weeks. But, and your, uh, your source on the pricing, was it Y-charts? Yeah, sources, white charts. Got yes, it, sir. All right, so let's uh, transition to big headlines and current events. If it's okay, Nick, I'll start off and I uh, want to get some feedback from you on this, okay? Yeah, hit me. So let's start with the September jobs number that came out Friday. Oh, yeah. That was the gut punch for the market, Yeah. right? So let me give big you the time. data, and then I want to see what your response is. So the data came in too strong. Non-farm payrolls came in at 263000 after a gain of 315,000 in August. Your initial thoughts? Yeah, so consensus was 250. And we talked about this a little bit last week, you and I on and off the podcast. And and this was kind of the number I was expecting. I thought two, 250. You thought it was going to be stronger? I did. I thought, you know, that 260 range. I mean, dropping from the 315 to 263, that's, that's a pretty good drop. But the forecast seemed a bit aggressive for me, just with where we are, I think it's just going to take a little bit longer for some of these rate hikes to sit into the economic data. So that, that was my thoughts. I wasn't, I really wasn't that shocked, but the market clearly, <laughs> clearly was. Um, and, and, you know, we had the, the sell off that kind of, uh, you know, 
uh, popped some of that optimism we were talking about last week. So, so the, a good way to say it, I think, in plain English for our listeners and viewers is we're in an environment short term where strong economic data is bad for the market. Yeah. And can you kind of explain why that is? Why is the market reacting negatively to what would normally be good news? Yeah, so like, like you're saying, we're in the, the bad news is it's good news environment. And really what the market wants to see, the market wants to turn the corner. And the market has wanted to turn the corner all year long. Once you're in a rate, a rate hiking cycle like we are, and it's particularly such an aggressive rate hike, hike cycle, um, the, the market wants to see the light at the end of the tunnel. They want to know when rates are going to stop rising and, and even furthermore, when they're going to start coming down again. Mm -hmm. And the only way that that can happen is for the Fed's mandate to, to take, take a hold and, and particularly to get, get inflation under control. And that's going to happen through economic data getting weaker which right. is what the market is looking for. So, and that's really across the board, right? The market wants to see, and this sounds bad, I, I recognize it, but it's true. The market wants to see less job growth, less job openings. They want to they see more unemployment. They want manufacturing to come down. I mean, they want that bad economic data and not horrible, but they want to see it come down. That's right. Yeah. And you would assume, and this goes back to my comments in the last couple of weeks in the podcast, the Fed's aggressively raising interest rates. Very They're aggressive. doing it to slow the economy. Mm -hmm. So when the data starts to come out and it starts to so, show more sluggishness, that's not going to, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. Absolutely not. And, no. you know, uh, my concern is when that data kind of hits what I call mainstream news media, it might be met with, oh my gosh, things are getting worse on Main Street America. It's, that's, it should. What's, <laughs> that's what's supposed to happen. Yep. Right? Yeah. Now, I have a piece of my research that talks specifically about um, jobs, unemployment rate, mm -hmm. and it's forward-looking, and I think it's going to create a good roundtable between you and me, and it's going to educate our viewers and our listeners of the podcast about what to expect over the next 12 months. I think you're going to enjoy this. Excellent. Okay, I'll continue on. One positive note for the market last week, Nick was the Jolt's job openings dropped from 11.2 million job openings in July to 10.05 million in August. That is the largest single drop month over month for the Jolt's job opening. Your comments. Still, in my opinion, it is the largest, like you're, like you're saying here, the largest drop month over month. Uh, it, it needs to keep coming down. I think you need to see this kind of deceleration, acceleration to the downside, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and those numbers, I think that's what the market's looking for. So, And see, the, the reason yeah. I think this year has been so unique on the job front is in Q1 and Q2, we had negative economic growth. Mm -hmm. That's a definition of a recession. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Job gains keep, keep coming, which seems weird. Yeah, And I think does. the big reason is companies were so understaffed due to all the reasons of COVID that I think you're now having companies with the sluggishness and slowdown of what we've seen and what is yet to come. Companies are getting more right sized mm -hmm. and compared to the craziness that companies had to do to attract talent the last couple of years, the power shift is changing to where it's more of an employer's market Very much so. than an employee's market. Yeah. And I think they're starting to get more selective. 
Yeah. Um, but again, when people look at it and say, well, how could that be? We have job growth, but we had a technical recession in the first half of the year. I think it's because companies are still, for the most part, understaffed in general. Yeah. And that's what's making the data wonky right now. That's the, that's the term of the day I'm going to use, wonky. I like it. I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent point and something that I don't think a, a lot of people have talked about is how could you have negative GDP growth, but then all these other economic data points are, are so strong, which crazy you make it? a good point in, in thinking that historically, maybe the past decade, corporate America may have been slightly underemployed, um, not utilizing their workforce, but there's, there's a lot of different things. I, I won't, I won't launch. Um, but the two, two other points I'll leave listeners with to think about is, is the strength of the American economy relative to the global economy this year. So a lot of, a lot of our big companies are obviously multinational. And so their, their international revenues have, have been hurt a little mm -hmm. bit. So there's that piece of it. Yep. Right. So the, the export side of things. And then I think the other thing, which, which we don't have to get into too deeply, but I think the, the culture, the the workplace culture shift over the past five ten years has been pretty significant to give employees a little bit more more power i think you see more and more research and more and more companies really focusing on how do we retain our talent that's, that's a big, right big topic especially even for wall street because it is so competitive absolutely um so that's another another reason why you know you might not see those layoffs as quick as you're seeing profits being impacted so yeah, I think there's a lot of people who learned some valuable lessons. I mean, let's look at, you know, look at like the airline sector. You know, yeah. when COVID hit, they, they cut, you know, this really skilled staff, whether it's flight attendants, pilots. Yeah. And then all of a sudden when they wanted to get them back, they couldn't get that skilled labor the way they yeah. wanted. Right. And it really hurt them. I think companies are thinking, okay, if I have to endure some pain for six to 12 months before things rebound, yeah. I'd rather have this staff that, is experienced and knowledgeable than in six to 12 months hiring people and starting that experience education process all over again. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The next thing coming out this week is key inflation data, Nick. So this is going to be an important week. Yeah, Why? We're getting PPI and CPI this week. Produ producer price index is on Wednesday this week, and the consumer price index is on Thursday. The CPI came in at 8.3% year-over-year gain in August. The consensus for September is that coming down to 8.1%. I was reading Argus. Argus is at 8% even, to give mm. you another analogy. Yeah. And the peak for the data, to give our viewers and listeners some context, was in June when the year-over-year -year figure came in at 9.1%. Mm -hmm. Why is this noteworthy? Everyone right now has blinders to the Federal Reserve and what they're going to be doing at these next two Fed meetings. You got the next Fed meeting coming up in early November, then in mid-December. The market right now is really trying to figure out, are they going to do 75 basis points, 0.75% in that November meeting? Or are they going to do 50 basis points? And what are they going to do in December? And this inflation data is one of those key components to that decision. Any comments? Yeah, it's a massive component. Yeah. Massive component, yeah, right? Very much so. Now, the FOMC minutes are due out on Wednesday at 2 p.m. That is where uh, the Fed releases the minutes from their prior meeting. And I know that will be viewed with close eyes. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when, um, when the market's at these challenging pivotal points, like we're at right now, revisiting these June lows, 
it's interesting how this economic data becomes so much in focus for people, right? Yeah. Because you got so many people kind of waiting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Okay. When's everyone going to buy? When's everyone going to buy? When's it going to turn? And everyone's waiting for, yeah. for that to happen right now. Yeah. And they're looking for these clues, right? Yeah. And particularly interesting, I know you're about to go into it, but the timing of this with earnings season as that's well what's going to make this is, interesting. Is interesting. Yeah. So the next and final point I have in big headlines and current events is Q3 earnings season kicking off. Yep. Now, I had a rant about this last week, okay, <laughs> because the, the benchmark is low, okay? When I say low, okay, I'm talking like a toddler can hop over the hurdle right now, okay? The expectations are super, super low. Mm-hmm. And so... We have big names starting to kick off earnings season for Q3 this week. And this is not a uh, advice uh, or a recommendation for or against any of these names, but rather I'm going to yell off some of the bigger market cap names yeah. that are releasing earnings this week. You ready, Nick? Mm-hmm. Pepsi, Progressive, Fastenal, Walgreens, Domino's Pizza, BlackRock, Delta Airlines, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, PNC, United Healthcare, First Republic Bank, U.S. Bank Corp., Morgan Stanley. This is going to be the first insights to Q3 earnings, right? And Q3 for the broader economy was a challenging quarter. And if these companies can come in with even okay earnings, mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see how the market responds to that. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I think, and I know we talk about this all the time, the market's forward-looking. I think just as just as much as okay earnings this quarter, I think the market will be looking to see if we're getting further guidance. A lot of companies have cut guidance or have even stopped guiding into, into late 2023. If we can get a better understanding of what these these executives think they're, their profitability is going to look like through 2023, and if it's going to stay relatively the same if, if it's going to come down a little bit. Um, I think the sweet spot for me, big picture, when we're talking about all the companies in the market, I think it would be good if they came down a little bit because I think a lot of the street wants to see that, but not too much, right? Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens, but I think that will be a pretty pretty hot focus. Now, well. when these companies report earnings, Nick, they usually have their conference calls that day yeah. where they kind of have their open dialogue about, hey, this is how the quarter went. These mm-hmm. are our general comments forward looking, and then they take questions from analysts. Yep. I think the Q&A session of these earning calls are going to be pivotal because oh, yeah. like you're indicating, I think these analysts are going to be trying to nitpick and poke and figure out what are you seeing right now and what are your estimations for the future? Right. And, and to, to peel that back one more layer for your listeners, the analysts that are on these call, calls, they're called sell side analysts as opposed to buy side. So the sell side think research analysts. So they're really the, the, the majority of the call is made up of the guys who are asking questions are these quote unquote research analysts who work for the big banks and they actually build the models and are projecting where the stocks are going to be. They're the guys, when you look at this, when you look at this broader market research that says, Hey, Morgan Stanley thinks the S&P is going to be at 3,600 by the end of the year. Those are the analysts that are making those projections. Yes. Hopefully that gives listeners a little bit more on that. It does. It does. All right. So let's pivot to our normal, uh, midsection, um, tweets, articles, and research from the week. Nick, you okay if I start off? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here's what I got this week. The first is, my title of this topic is, economic data to most likely get worse before it gets better. And I want to say it one more time. I want to hit it home to everybody. 
The data is going to get worse before it gets better. The market has priced that in. Look at stock prices year to date. It's pricing in that negativity. It's pricing in that uncertainty. Absolutely. But why did I pick this specific piece? This is a blog post by Zero Hedge on October 10th. The title of it is, Payrolls Turn Negative Next Quarter and Stay There for All of 2023 According to Bank of America Research. Here's the quote. Are you ready? The bank's economists are calling for payrolls to drop to about half the pace upcoming in the fourth quarter, which we're in, of 2022 versus the previous third quarter, and then start to go negative, negative job numbers on a monthly basis beginning in Q1 of 2023, where it will stay until the end of next year. Now, Jenna's going to put up this chart for our viewers on YouTube, and this will be a part of our podcast notes and all of our social media sites. She's putting up now a Bank of America global research that shows their estimates for monthly non-farm payrolls uh, between where they've been uh, for about a year ago and what they're forecasting through the end of 23. What this is showing with this forecast, now remember, Nick, this is just one opinion. But this opinion is assuming that for a majority, if not all of 2023, those monthly job numbers are going to come in negative. And they're thinking that for it looks like here, Q2 and Q3, that it's going to average somewhere between a negative 100,000 to a negative 200,000 job losses per month as an average Q2 and Q3 of next year. Mm-hmm. So why are you seeing this negativity in the market lately? Why are you seeing this double bottom? The market is pricing in the uncertainty that with what the Fed is doing with aggressively raising interest rates, it slows economic activity, it brings inflation in, but what is the byproduct of this? You lose jobs. You lose jobs. Unemployment creeps up. That's right. And so for listeners, the non-farm payrolls, that's the jobs number that we were talking about earlier. That comes out the first full Friday uh, of, of every month of every for the month, previous yeah. month, yep. right? Exactly. So here's the next thing that it was in that same blog post. Um, there was a, a chart that's the Bank of America indicator of U.S. financial conditions. So Jenna will put this up now on our viewers for YouTube and for our listeners on the traditional podcast sites. You can get this chart in our show notes. And so the financial conditions um, have tightened rapidly this year and are near peaks observed in prior tightening cycles. And so here's the quote I wanted to share. This is because financial conditions are tightening fast. Here, B of A economists estimate conditions are already much tighter than the peak of the prior cycle in 2018. And uh, I find it really interesting. Um, You know, the reason I'm highlighting this is, this is exactly what the Fed's looking at. Data like this right now. Mm -hmm. And when money starts to get more expensive, when money gets harder to obtain, they um, start to raise lending requirements, Mm -hmm. that's gonna slow economic activity. Yep. Anything you wanna say about that? Yeah, I think these these charts, particularly the first one for listeners, you know, why why is the forecast so significant and, and the negatives? I think the, the the headline reason is because rates are being hiked at the most aggressive uh, the most aggressive pace since early eighties, like eighty three. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and I think when these guys are making their forecasts, they, they have to take that into consideration. You have to look at the last time we've seen a, a pace of rate hike at, at that level. And, um, and so that's kind of, you know, the underlying reasoning behind the, the forecasts. So yeah. that, that's really all I'd add. Um, great charts, great research from Zero Head. Isn't this Hedge. good? Yeah. All right. So my next topic is, and I can't wait to see what your response is to this one. <laughs> okay. I picked this uh, because of, of your background, uh, of your research pedigree. So why, I'm sorry, I'll start over again. What does oil and the S&P 500 index have in common, Nick, after they both rally over 5% over a two-day span? You ready for this? Mm-hmm. So this research is from Bespoke Investment Group, research note on October 7th. I'm going to start off and I'm going to read this. And I'm quoting. Quote, like oil and water, oil and stock prices generally do not mix. A big jump in oil prices usually leads to lower stock prices, while stock prices often experience a boost when oil prices decline. That's what makes the performance of both to start the week off, this is last week, so interesting, with the S&P up over 5% through Tuesday's close, while oil prices surged 9% over a two-day span. And I'll note that uh, Bespoke utilized the word surge appropriately compared to most financial <laughs> news outlets. Yeah. Continue quoting. The chart below shows the S&P 500 since 2007 with the red dots. And now Jenna will put this chart up. This chart will show the S&P 500 since 2007, Nick with red dots showing every day that both the S&P and crude oil rallied 5% over a two-day span. Four of those occurrences came during and coming out of the great financial crisis in the late 2000s. Another was in August 2015 when China China devalued their currency, the one. And the most recent occurrence before this week was right after the COVID crisis crash lows with the exception of the first occurrence right after lehman brothers bankruptcy in september of 2008 every one of these other occurrences came either in the later stages of a bear market or coming out of a significant decline and what they all have in common is that they occurred during periods and ready for this severe market dislocations that's what's happening right now okay So when you look at this chart for our our listeners on traditional podcast, I would highly recommend you look at this chart. I like data like this because when things are crazy and you have such severe dismarket dislocations, Mm -hmm. you have crazy volatility where the market rallies 6% in two days, gives it all back the rest of the three days of the trading week. That's not normal trading in the market. That is the market reacting to every little data piece because it's on such heightened um, hypersensitivity to everything. Market angst. angst. is high. Yeah. And when we see these types of events, when we see this type of data, Nick, it tends to come at lows. We're either coming out of or near the end of a bear market. I'm not suggesting that the bear market's over and that we're going to completely go straight up from here. But we're, in my opinion, when I see data like this, you're in the vicinity. This right. is not normal. Right. And what causes this, in my opinion, is when you have severe market dislocations, 
volume tends to dry up and with the with the trading that is done out there it takes a lot less money to really move this market yeah because on these up and down days you either have buyer or seller strikes mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is when you had those two major up days on monday and tuesday of last week you had not a lot of sellers and a lot of buyers and yeah. that's why market moved so quick yeah. opposite on friday with that jobs number right you had a lot of selling pressure and there weren't a lot of people willing to step up kind of like at that auction and say i'll buy at that price you had people step up and say yeah i'll buy but man i need a discount on that i need some i need mm -hmm. some i need some room on that price so i can feel comfortable getting into yep. it right yeah, you're gonna put in your your limit order and that's right. Let, let the bid and ride. so I'm highlighting this because now we got some data points behind it that this type of action happens mm -hmm. near or at or in the vicinity, looking back historically, when the market's near a low point. Your, your comments. Yeah, it's, it's funny. When, when you read that first sentence before reading the rest of it, my initial thought was two reasons. Probably volatility and, and a bear market would be the, the two things uh, that would would cause those two things to to go up like that. Um, it's, it's a good a good piece of research. I tend to agree with everything uh, that you said. Um, you know, I think that first that first dot with uh, with the Lehman crisis, man, that was pretty wild. Time that was pretty wild time. So that that's really the one you know you could argue negative piece of data in this chart but I, I would I would discount that pretty heavily I mean so. I actually will will throw this out there and I've said this before in the podcast I'm 40 what I went through 07 to 09 specifically in the third and fourth quarter of 08 I question whether I will witness such an uncertain environment again yeah. in my career. Yeah. And the reason I say that, and the reason I get so defensive, Nick, about people that try to provide analogies, mm -hmm. you literally had the entire global monetary system mm -hmm. ceased. The engine stopped. Yeah. And, you know, that's what's tough to really find these comparables. Yeah. And then you look at the S&P performance for that year, the January 1st to December 31st number be down about 35, 36%. And then you look at our numbers year to date and the S and P is down about 24%. Mm -hmm. And man, it just makes me kind of feel my opinion that a lot of this uncertainty is priced in more than, than people think. Could it go lower? Absolutely. It could sure. go lower. Yeah. Could it take longer for the market to recover? Absolutely. It could, but man, you look at balance sheets today, you look at balance sheets back then, you look at the monetary system now compared to back then, you know, it's trying to compare a Ford Pinto to a brand new Honda. It's just apples to oranges, in my opinion. Okay. All right. My last piece I have is another update on the 6040 portfolio. We talk about this a lot in the podcast, Nick. And it's been a good year to talk about it. It's been a good year to talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Right. Yeah. And I know down the road, we're going to have another year like this. And it'd be good to provide this analogy because we'll be saying, remember 2022, mm -hmm. right? And people can go back in the archives, listen to the podcast at that time, hear exactly what we're saying today. Yeah. This stuff is timestamped, baby. It is. Okay. So here, research from Bespoke Investment Group on October 7th. 
Jenna's going to put up the chart for our YouTube viewers. It shows the performance year to date through October for the typical 60-40 portfolio going back to 1976. Will you summarize what a 60 portfolio generally means for our newer viewers and listeners, please? Yeah, 60-40 portfolio is 60% equities, 40% fixed income or, or bonds. Um, so when you look at this chart, what they'll do is they'll normally take, you know, um, a couple benchmarks and they'll just package them together and do the research. But um, there's a lot of different ways to get your 60-40. You don't have to buy ETFs. You could buy individual stocks, get your 60, individual bonds, get your 40. Or you could buy ETFs and ETFs. You could buy stocks and ETFs. So 60-40 um, is... Uh, a more moderate approach to the markets with the intention of trying to kind of smooth out some of your returns so that it's less volatile for investors. Um, and the reason being is that 40%, historically speaking, is a little bit, not a little bit, is much safer and, and less risky than, than your equities. Your fixed income is a little bit more of a, of a solid, stable market historically yes that's why this chart is interesting and I, that's why i like this is this data goes back to 76 you look at this chart now the 64 the 60 40 portfolio through october on this chart this year down 18.05 percent on average right you look back read the number out loud for 2008 it's 18.05%. For this year, what is it for oh, 2008? For 2008, it's 20.4. That's pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. And the reason why it's so poor is unlike 08, where stocks were really poor and bonds were in demand and it buoyed that 60-40 return, yeah. this year, what's happening? This year, it's both. And that's... That's again, I probably should have mentioned that on the 60-40, one of the reasons that it helps smooth out returns is, is historically speaking, when you read your textbooks, your equities and your, and your fixed income uh, are generally more inverse. So when your equities are having a really bad time, that 40% that of your portfolio kind of helps it and, and holds it up, uh, which is the, the 2008, exactly what you're talking about, where fixed income helped some of that equity performance. This year, and, and I've mentioned it numerous times on the podcast, the bond market has been really rough, really, really rough. Oh, yeah. uh, and, just and, to be rough, just as tough as stocks have been this year. Yeah, and, and very and, and correlations between between stocks and bonds have, have increased significantly this year. And I, I don't think that's here to stay, personally. I think it will even itself out. Uh, but that's the reason that this... I'm glad you said that. I got some data to put behind that statement. You ready? Excellent. <laughs> the next chart I have is... Lower returns, more volatility is the title of the chart, but here's what I love about it. It shows the rolling three-year standard deviation of monthly returns of the average 60-40 portfolio. This also goes back to 1976. Mm -hmm. Why am I highlighting this? You have three instances, three data points where volatility movement was this dramatic this is number three going back to 1976. Mm -hmm. And Nick, when you look at the chart above and you look at the returns, what tends to happen after volatility tends to peak? You go through 10, generally speaking, a period of time where the returns for the 60 portfolio for several years tend to get pretty good, mm -hmm. right? I'm highlighting this for those people who are listening who are uncomfortable right now. 
I'm highlighting this for people that are moderate risk investors who are thinking to themselves, you know what, I'm not happy how things are going this year, yeah. and I'm fearful. I'm turning on the news, I'm seeing all this uncertainty, I'm seeing all this negativity, when is it gonna stop? And I'm telling you the headlines are gonna get worse before they get better. But what I'm telling you is that statistically speaking, we are at one of the third peaks going back to the 70s. And statistically speaking, in the future, the next couple of years, things are gonna get better, and I would argue a lot better and quicker than most people think. Yeah, I agree. And I'm putting data behind this. I agree. Okay, I'll send it over to you. What do you got this week? Uh, just a couple quick ones for listeners. So the first thing I have here, oh, my computer's frozen here. Oh, there we go. Uh, is is another note on technicals, and and I talked about this a little bit last week. Um, you know, not to not to ignore the technicals. The technicals have been very strong um, this year, really. Um, and this is the ten ten tweet from J C Peretz um, um, with All Star Charts. And his, his tweet says, are you betting that these are going to break down? Question mark. That's all he says. And then the chart shows uh, mid caps, small caps, and micro caps. And it shows technical levels that, that we're currently um, above and have already tested. And they're very strong technical levels. And it was really interesting to read the comments on his tweet because there was a lot of people that said, yes, I'm betting that it, it definitely breaks. And so there, there's people on both sides of the fence. Um, and I, and I checked this chart this morning as well. I'm sure listeners are curious cause the market's down a little bit and the charts are holding up just fine. Um, actually they're doing, they're doing pretty, pretty well. Um, so I just want to throw it up there, uh, again for, for listeners on, on some of the technical strength that we have in the market, regardless of some of the headlines that you're going to see. And one of which you'll see today is that, you know, the S and P 500 made a new low for the year. Um, you're going to see some of those headlines, but uh, there's still some pretty strong technical levels out there for different parts of the market and different segments and of the market. To throw it out there, when you look at mid, mid caps, small caps, micro caps, that could be perceived as riskier Risk. areas of the market compared to large cap S&P 500. Exactly. And when one looks at this and says, hmm, riskier parts of the market are not making new lows. Why are they? Why are they holding up? Why are they holding sense, up? Right. That's and what you want to see. That's, that's what when you want to see. And I know Marcus talked about this a lot. But when you when you start to see that, that's another sign that okay, the underlying were, fundamentals of the market aren't as bad as people think. Right. And we're getting closer to that range. You know, I'm not going to call it bottom. Um, <laughs> that's if I could predict the future, man. I wish I could, but. I think we're closer to that range of, of the bottom. Yeah, and I think if, if, if Mark were here, he might use the term false breakdown. Yep. And it's not uncommon sometimes to see the market test a previous low, break down a little further, and then for whatever the catalyst might be, who knows? It could be the PPI or CPI report this week. Could be Fed minutes. It could be a speech by a Federal Reserve uh, regional bank governor over the next couple of weeks. It could be earnings season at the end of October. Could be the Fed meeting at the beginning of November. There's a lot of potential catalyst, and this market is wound tight, baby. Mm -hmm. And when money starts flowing, just like you saw the market move 6% in two days, this is not a market that you want to rest and try to time. This is not a market you can time. No, no, it moves quick. Moves quick. Very quick. What else you got this week? So the next thing I have is another um, chart performance uh, on tech. 
underperformance. Uh, and this is another tweet from yesterday, and this is from Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. And her, her tweet says the following, uh, the tech sector is underperforming S&P 500 year to date by the most since 2002. Um, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Um, and it's just a, a, a quick little bar chart of, of, the, uh, of the tech performance. Um, price change, one year percentage. And really, I just wanted to talk about this, bring this up a little bit for, for listeners, because that's a pretty big headline is that you have tech underperforming the most since 2002. And you've seen all kinds of headlines about, you know, the great tech unwind. And, um, you know, obviously, I can't say that um, you know, I disagree with those phrases, because I, I suppose it's fair. Tech has been uh, an underperformer for a year and a half now, maybe a little longer. Um, but I wanted to bring this up just to show the chart, and then I have another research piece that kind of goes into it right after this. But what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I like to be a contrarian at times, especially mm -hmm. in times of market dislocations like we're seeing right now. And again, when I look out at these data points, I think about where's the market 12, 24, and 36 months out, and I look at the quality of balance sheets across these different sectors in general. I look at the consistent earnings growth that we've seen, even if you have a headwind slowdown with the economic side of it, I could argue that technology in general is a very attractive sector. Yeah. Again, you're not gonna time it one month out, even one quarter out, but you know, the balance sheets of these, a lot of these technology names, oh my gosh, yeah. debt to cash, mm -hmm. free cash flow, EBITDA, I mean, Juicy. Whatever, pick a metric. Right? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, again, I, and I see these kind of numbers, it gets me excited for the future. Yeah, and I, I would argue that it's the technology space is actually in a in a healthy position. Um, why do I that that might be a hot take to some, but you know, there's there's a couple reasons why why this chart has taken a hold and why tech has underperformed and. Um, to simplify it, I mentioned it's the most uh, aggressive Fed rate cycle since the 80s. Anytime you see that, the textbook says to get out of tech, right? Mm -hmm. um, profit taking is another huge piece of it, um, where you have people who have made a lot of money on, on tech over the past decade. So you're, you've got some people that said, okay, the market's turning over. We're into a bear market. Let's take some of our profits off the big the big tech trade and, and some of these other names. And, and the other part that I would urge listeners to, to just consider is that the high valuation names are, are likely dragging down some of the tech benchmarks. And, and what do I mean by that? You have to be careful. And we've talked about it with the value and growth trade when you, when you lump stocks into value and lump stocks into growth. Same thing with the tech sector. There are so many different companies. Yes. And the balance sheets are, I mean, widely different. So yes. your high valuation tech names, absolutely. They got hammered especially the ones that are unprofitable right now the ones that are unprofitable the ones that need cash in order to make the vision come true yeah now they're borrowing at way way higher rates and yeah they they you would expect there to be some pain but um that's not the case for everyone in the tech sector and i i, I would urge listeners not to put a blanket statement on that and, and you know if you gotta peel the peel the onion back just one more layer to kind of understand that. So yeah, there's a lot of companies out there that are very profitable in the tech sector whose Absolutely. balance sheets are good. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that kind of leads me into my last little piece here. And it's uh, 
It's another tweet from uh, uh, from the co-founder of TraderAid. I think I used the other co-founder last last week, which was uh, kind of funny. I just stumbled across this. It's a tweet from Markets and Mayhem, and um, the, the the title of the tweet is uh, Microsoft IPO versus Now, and it's a really cool graphic. Um, and this I, I put this together with my last piece just to kind of you know bring it full circle. Okay. Uh, and, and important that we say this is not a recommendation for or against Microsoft reason I bring it up is because of what we were just talking about and just to kind of provide some scope for and we talk about it all the time how different these tech companies are now versus 2002 right yes um, and, and this is a cool graphic we'll throw it up for everyone but just to give you kind of some perspective as to and this is just one example Microsoft is not the only company who has grown in this manner manner yeah um and it, it just shows you, it's a real cool chart that shows you in 1985 when they IPO'd, you know, they had 140 million in revenue and, and that was in one major business segment. And now they have three major big business sections, you know, intelligent cloud, productivity and business processes and more personal computing. I mean, you've got just huge businesses stacked in there and, and their revenue is up to 168 billion and, and, you know, the net profit is, is up. You know, it's a 30, 36% profit margin. I mean, it's really, really impressive. I mean, their cost of sales, I mean, you just look at this chart and you get a, you, you can understand a little bit better what we're talking about when we say they're so different to mm -hmm. what they were like two decades ago. So what are, what are your thoughts? Again, the depth of these balance sheets, the average boardroom of corporate America through the great financial crisis, learned a very valuable lesson. When the monetary system completely seized, they thought to themselves, we could no longer rely upon the markets, that we got to kind of be our own bank. Mm -hmm. And I think when you just look at cash levels kind of a, across the board, companies are drastically in a better position to weather any sort of softness in the economy compared to the great financial crisis. And I think that that lesson is here to stay. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you have these moments, you're going to have companies that are going to be more opportunistic about them than others. And you're going to see companies that think to themselves, okay, well, we can start buying a competitor because stuff's pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. Why don't we, instead of organically growing, let's buy our growth. Yeah. You're going to have other companies that sit there and say, you know what? Our stock is way too cheap. We have a lot of cash in the balance sheet. Let's buy back our own stock. Yeah. You know, there's just a lot more things that companies have in their toolbox uh, I'd argue there are certain companies, not only in the tech sector, but in other sectors that have so much cash, they can clearly define what their future is. Mm -hmm. You know, the board can decide where they, where they take that company. And they can do it without having to hit a home run. That's right. And I it's think just, that's where a lot of companies in the past have gotten really smacked as they try to hit a home run and, and you know, they don't, they hit a double. Well, I mean, right? let's say that um, XYZ company, I don't care what sector it is, let's say they have a hundred billion in cash, Okay. Four years ago, Wall Street would give them no credit for that money because interest rates were zero. They weren't getting anything on it. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to now, let's say they're making at your two-year yield, that's at 4%. That's $4 billion a year now going to the bottom line they didn't have before. Yep. You know, there's just a lot of things out there that are just completely different. Mm -hmm. um, my last comment on this is the evolution of technology. Uh, a lot of these companies are designed to have their revenue reoccurring. Mm -hmm. You know, in the... 90s and early 2000s, it was more of a transactional oriented tech, right? You'd buy it once, you'd own the product, you'd own the software. 
Yeah. Guess what they're going to now? Variable costs. Monthly, yearly subscriptions, reoccurring revenue. Different models well, for a lot of these big companies. Big contracts. You see, uh, particularly on the cloud side of things, you see big contracts. Yeah. You know, your seven-year Predictability seven on that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Different di- different animals. It's a, it's a I, I complain about it in my personal life, about the variable costs, but from a corporate America perspective, oh, I love it. It's great. It's You'd much right. rather see that. Um, own it. Own it and have a seven-year contract on something that's much more powerful in the long term. Absolutely. Uh, Before we invite Taylor on the podcast for the financial planning topic of the week, Nick, you want to end with anything? No, that was was everything. Hopefully listeners uh, enjoyed it, and it's uh, great being here as always. So we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. So uh, our final section of the podcast is our financial planning topic of the week. Uh, We have our fan favorite. Uh, Taylor Ledbetter is back on the podcast. Welcome, Taylor good to be back all right number 171 financial planning topic of the week what do you got for us yeah so today i'm going to be talking about annuities versus 401ks Mm -hmm. just the differences which one may be better for retirement all right i'll let you dig in so just as an overview i'm sure most people are really familiar with 401ks but it's a tax-deferred retirement account through an employer, mm-hmm. and you make contributions through a regular payroll deduction. So what's going into the 401k now, you don't pay taxes on until you withdraw that later on in retirement. Got it. Now, an annuity, it's a contract between you and a life insurance company, and you'll give the insurance company money either in a single large premium or in small regular premium payments. And the insurance company promises to pay you a certain amount of money every single month, normally starting in retirement. Now, generally annuities are purchased with after-tax dollars, but the earnings grow completely taxable. So when you receive this money as income in retirement, you'll have a portion that is completely tax-free, so what you put into the annuity, and then you'll also have a portion that is taxable. Yes. So before I get into, you know, the main differences between the two, I mean, do you have one that you favor over the other, one that you think is a little bit better for retirement? The one thing that concerns me about annuities is what I would call the estate planning side of it, because you do not receive a stepped up cost basis on annuity assets. And where I've seen issues is let's say that XYZ individual puts 50 grand into a lump sum annuity, doesn't take immediate income and lets it kind of continue to invest and save. You know, let's say it's worth 250,000 and the person passes guess what? You don't get a stepped up cost basis on that $200,000 gain. Someone's paying the piper and most likely that whole 200,000 could be taxable in a single year. And so that's my kind of concern about when people use them in that fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of starting off with a negative. Um, I see that, you know, 401ks is one of the biggest wealth drivers I've seen uh, for the average American. And to have that money grow, compound, take income from it in retirement, uh, that's where immediately where my kind of love and attraction goes to. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I mean, I'm going to talk about like the inflation protection on, on both of those. Um, you touched on inheritance. So I, I agree with all your points. Okay. 
Um, so the first difference, just adding to the, the difference in the taxes between the two, um, if you withdraw fr funds from your 401k before age 59 and a half, you have that 10% early withdrawal penalty. Um, and you could have the same thing for an annuity as well mm -hmm. if you take money out before it comes due. So you could have that 10% penalty, but you also would have surrender fees. Obviously, that would vary um, depending when you take it out and, and all of that. That's right. Correct. Um, another difference is loans. So you can borrow from your 401k or borrow against it, but you can't borrow from an annuity. Good point. Um, and I know we're not, you know, favorable towards 401k loans anyway. Sure. But that's just another difference between the two. It's good to highlight at least. Mm -hmm. um, another difference, which we've kind of talked about, is that most annuities provide unchanging payments. So... There's no inflation protection. Whereas, like you said earlier, the 401k grows over time. And so there is inflation protection there. Yeah. Um, just as a comparison, Goldman Sachs ran a report and they pointed out that historically, I mean, over the past 10 years or so, the S&P averages about nine, nine and a half percent. So pretty big difference compared to you know, the annuity where you're not really earning anything. Interesting. Um, another difference is obviously the income because the 401k, you'll have more investment flexibility. So depending what you pick could provide more income in retirement or less just depending on the market. But the annuity, it's fixed payments for life. So, so with that annuity, that. you're in essence transferring the investment risk to the insurance company, right? Correct. Whereas with the 401k, you are carrying that investment risk where you have years like 2022 and the market's down on average, let's just throw out 25% as just kind of an average. Mm -hmm. And you know that could hurt your ability to get the income you might be seeking. But on the flip side, if you're at that fixed annuity payment, what mm -hmm. is $1,000 gonna be worth 10 years from now where you might have the ability to see that 401k recover in the coming years, resume that withdrawal rate and have an inflation hedge, that's just immediately where I go with it. Mm -hmm. But I understand the people who want you know, a written guarantee from XYZ insurance company, I understand the mindset, mm -hmm. but then you gotta look at the fact that what's that thousand dollars in my example really worth down the road. Right, and you know, even though we have years like we have this year, we're going to have more positive years than, you know, negative years. So you sound just like Mark sitting in that <laughs> chair. That's exactly what Mark would say. Really? Yes, exactly what he would say. Um, but yeah, so over time, I think the 401k is just a better option. Yes, I'm in agreement with that statement. Um, the last difference I have on here is just the contributions. So a 401k has an annual contribution limit of 20,500 for 2022. Yep. And they also have an additional catch up of 6,500 once you reach age 50. Got it. Um, with an annuity, there are no contribution limits. You can put in as much as you want. Um, sometimes people might even put in a million dollars. Yeah. It just depends. So. Sure. I've seen that, you know, where I've seen those instances and where it gets more what I would uh, perceive to be headlines are athletes. I've seen headlines where professional athletes 
uh, are concerned about their uh, future financial discipline and their high income earning years. And I've heard stories. And uh, one example I heard in the past was OJ Simpson. And when OJ was in his career, he purchased a lot of these annuities knowing, hey, I don't want to worry about money down the road. I'm willing to take a lower rate of return knowing I'm going to get money. And he is still living off of these large annuity payment checks for money he invested back in his um, high income earning years when he was a professional athlete. And it's funny how you kind of see those stories where, you know, there are instances where maybe, you know, turning that money over, I no longer can see it, I can't touch it if I want it, but I know I'm going to get a, a solid amount of income down the road. There's other ways you could design it through trust of that nature, trust meeting estate planning mm -hmm. vehicles. But, um, you know, there are instances like that where it forces someone to stay disciplined. You're turning that money over to the insurance company. You can't get it back, and they're going to give you income. Yeah, and that's a scenario where I probably agree with. It's yeah. the best route to go. Yeah. You're worried about having discipline and taking, you know, too much out of a 401k or something yeah. like that. Yeah. No, that was a good highlight. Anything else you want to you wanna end on, Taylor? Um, no, I think that was it. All right. Well, uh, viewers and listeners, thank you for listening to episode number 171 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, Taylor and I hope that you all have a good rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.